Hello. Welcome to the very first podcast of Megamorphic Church, where we are being transformed by being church. This podcast features me, Caleb Eversmith, sharing a briefing, which I delivered on Sunday, the 1st of December, 2018. It is about the history of Jesus Christ and the fact that history is His story. Well, Lord God, thank you very much that you're here in our midst. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, Lord. You are Emmanuel. That is great news. God with us. Yes. Thank you for that truth that we have the massive distinction from all other belief systems that not only is there a God, but you're the God that is with us. Yes. You're in our midst. You're among us. You're right here, Lord God. Thank you for blessing us with your presence as we take the time to honor you, to learn, to listen to you. Yes. Pray that you'd speak through me in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Awesome. What an awesome song from Esther Melody. Yes. Very excited to have uh, Spotify finally put us on a playlist. Yeah. <laughs> as our, we're very grateful for Apple Music, yep. who have been pumping our stuff for the last few releases. Yeah. And now finally, we cracked on an Apple, uh, on a Spotify official playlist. Yeah. And we're seeing the plays and it's great. Yeah. And as our promoter to them said, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> like, all the others should have been on there. So grateful to have that kind of support. Yeah. Have someone that really, really believes in us. Someone, as a little bit of a personal testimony of like, when you're trying to live for Christ, it can, it can be nice and refreshing sometimes when someone notices and they make the effort to tell you that they've noticed something. Yes. And so he was like, well, tell me, he was like, I need to share with Apple Music and, I, um, and Spotify, like, what's the marketing plan for this album, for this EP release? And I was like, well, the biggest thing we're doing is we have, we've partnered with a homeless ministry and we're going to do a show and get 100 homeless people there. And he was like, of course you're doing that. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to tell them that, but that's not normal. <laughs> Usually it's like, we're going to drop $1,000 on promotion. But he's like, it's so great uh, that you guys are doing that. And I was like, man, if this was Caleb before Christ, BC Caleb, <laughs> that would not be what I would be talking about. Yeah. But thankfully, God is a God of transformation. Amen. Amen. And then the testimony creates more testimony. Yep. But who's ready to learn this morning? Put your hand up. Yeah. Are you ready to learn? Yep. Awesome. Because this is going to be uh, very teachy. <laughs> <laughs> I was assigned, so we're doing Emmanuel. God with us is the theme. And I have been assigned the week of the history. Yes. So I was like, let's go all out. Let's <laughs> learn some stuff. Amen. Amen. So get your brain into gear. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman, that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yep. So this is going to help you do that today. And approved unto God, right? Yeah. A lot of people don't feel approved unto God. <coughs> Although people probably didn't do very much study of the word either. Yes. <laughs> the Bible is telling us, great way to feel the approval of God is to study His word. Yes. Part of the reason for that is the word is relational. Yep. The word is Jesus Christ, right? Yep. You can read Him like a book. 
<laughs> so the more you study it, the more you're spending time with them, the more you'll feel the approval. That, by the way, is already there. Yeah. If you're a new creation, God approves of you. Yeah. And I sometimes begrudgingly do too. <laughs> Proverbs 4, verse 6 to 7. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Yeah. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. And then 2 Timothy 3, 3 16, another 3 16. Yeah. 17. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's get equipped today, knowing the history of the Christmas story. The reason for the season. Amen. Let's get rebuked today. <laughs> I'll be rebuking some people, but probably no one in this room. But <laughs> so history. It's awesome that history can be broken up into the words his story. Yes. Because yeah. history, you ever noticed it's AD and BC? Yes. After death before Christ. All of our history is defined by the birth of a man. Yes. That yeah. man is God in human form. Yeah, yeah they've, they've got all insecure about that and changed it to BCE and CE. Common era and before common era. Yes. It was a very common era. Yes. <laughs> it's still broken up in the same place. It's still broken up in the same place. It's still defined by when Jesus came. They can't get away from it. They're afraid of their maker. But all of history is centered around this story. Yep. So I figured, as soon as we got, we got time for that, I was a little worried because Dad was going on for a while. <laughs> but <laughs> we're going to read Matthew 1 and 2. Seeing as it's Christmas. Yes. It's the month of Christmas. We can read the Christmas story and we can enjoy it. And this also, we're going to be focusing on the history of Matthew, though we will touch on some Luke as well. So, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. The Messiah. A lot of people skip over that. But I suppose we're not a lot of people. 
It's in the Bible, I think it's important. Yeah. Thus, there were 14 generations, especially when we're talking about history, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bam. There's genealogy, it gives it credentials. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, then 14 from David to the exile, then 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Which is intriguing in itself. Yeah. God uses numbers. Yes. He does. Yep. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Yes. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. It's right there. Yes. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him, pardon me, the name Jesus. Self-control right man. there! He was a disciplined man. <laughs> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star, and when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was born, was to be born, sorry. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, but this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take your child and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. 
Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, take the child and the mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. Awesome. Amen. What a great story. Yes. Epic start to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And Jesus had an epic start to his life. I think all of ours was a little bit more boring than that. <laughs> a little bit more boring than that. Super interesting. It's really enjoyable to read that every year in your own Bible study and then also read it at Christmas time. Remembering what exactly we're celebrating. Yes. Well, we're going to highlight some things from this story today in regards to the history of the story, how accurate it is, because people do attack this, so we can be equipped. As it says in Timothy, no be uh, study to show yourself approved, be equipped for teaching, rebuking, etc. Right? Yep. So the first thing we're going to touch on today, as you'll see in the Berean notes, is the Magi. Yep. Those dudes who rocked up and gave those gifts. Right? Yep. Now, first of all, people talk about three. They gave three gifts. Three types. Three types of gifts. Yeah, we don't know how, how much frankincense. We don't know how much myrrh. We don't know how much gold. Yeah. Apparently enough gold that they could go live in Egypt for a while. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's very convenient. But uh, there was, we don't know how many there were. That's yeah. the way it is. There was magi. There was at least two. <laughs> there was probably a whole bunch. Yes. Because they traveled. You're going to find out where they traveled from. In a little bit. So to understand who the magi are. We have a lot of secular history, and it also lines up with the Bible. So the Magi, and I've been trying to practice saying this properly, uh, Zoroastrianism is... <laughs> well, that's why Freddie Mercury was yeah. part of. So Freddie Mercury <laughs> was part of the... He's, uh, he wasn't necessarily a Magi, because they're the hereditary priesthood. But Zoroastrianism is where the Magi are from. It is a very old religion. Just like in Israel, you have the, the Levites, the hereditary priesthood. If you're born a Levite, if you're born of that tribe, you're a priest. Yep. In Zoroastrianism, you have the Magi. And they are born as the priests of that religion. That's who the Magi are. It's where we actually get the term magic. It's derived from that. And the Magi have a history of being very smart sometimes delving into some bad stuff. And then one of the other interesting things about the Magi is that they have a lot of political power. So they're from the Medes in that Middle Eastern area, and they outlived, like, all the big empires. There's evidence of, the, evidence of them in the Babylonian Empire. Then they're in the Persian and the Medes Empire, which takes over there. Then they're in the Greek Empire, they show up. The Byzantine Empire, etc., etc. They're just like, there. They keep having impact. 
They're kind of like the Catholic Church since that started. <laughs> Just keep rocking up and having an impact, right? <laughs> so you had this group called the Magi. And how did they know that Jesus was born and that he was God? And even to look for the guy. Because yeah. yes. how did these people all the way from the East and the Babylon, Babylonian era know about Hebrew prophecy? Yes. Come on. Come how did they know that? Yes. Well, in Daniel chapter 2, and if you were part of the Smash the Flesh campaign, then you will probably, hopefully, know this. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the emperor of kings, he's, a king, he's one of the king of kings in history, he has a dream that freaks him out. And he decides that he's going to get someone to interpret it because he thinks it needs inter interpretation. And then he's quite shrewd with this. He's like, if you can interpret my dream, you can tell me what my dream is in the first place without me even telling you. <laughs> That's a real good way to, you know, people need to treat psychics today like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, if you know so much about my future, what does my palm look like? I'm not going to show you. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> Somebody use their brain. <laughs> so he does that, and the, me, the these magi have a problem, because they can't do it. Yes. They can't work out what the dream is, and so he actually kills a whole bunch of them. Yeah. It's just like, bam, offs a whole bunch of them. And then, Daniel gets given the job. And Daniel's like, I can't, I can't do this myself, but my God can. So, he goes to his bros, gets his bros to pray, and then he gets what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream he tells Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, whoa, <laughs> epic, proof, right? Mm -hmm. Proof that this man has been in contact with something supernatural, yep. beyond human capabilities. Yep. No one can tell you a dream you've had if you haven't told them what the dream is. Yes. But this happened. Yes. So then yeah. we see, in verse 48 of Daniel chapter 2, the outcome of that for Daniel is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, the king placed Daniel in a high position lavished many gifts on him, made him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all the wise men. Mm -hmm. Now the wise men there, you look into it, are the Magi. Yes. The Chaldeans is another term for them. The wise men, the Chaldeans, the Magi are all synonymous in the Babylonian Empire. So you have a Hebrew who's like, he knows the word of God, right? Yep. Daniel is the man. Is an awesome person to look up to. He gets made the head of the Magi. Yes. He's king over all of them and tells them what to do. And that's all we know. <laughs> we don't know any more than that, but I think it's very safe to assume that when a Hebrew got put at the top of the Magi, that's when the, he the Magi learned about the Hebrew prophecies. Yes. <laughs> It's like, you look outside and everything's weird. Hmm, I think it rained. <laughs> Someone may have got a hose and spent the time, like, wetting everything, but it probably rained, right? So, it definitely, yeah, it's pretty definite to me that the one time we know that a Hebrew guy got put over the Magi as their ruler, and then 400 years later, the Magi know Hebrew prophecy and show off at the perfect time. Yes. And not only that, this is the guy, Daniel, 
who received the prophecies about the Messiah. Exactly. He's one of the few that got the blatant, this is the time he's going to show up. Yes. So, he definitely, it seems like he definitely did a good job and trained those guys. Yes. And they rocked up. So, that's what we know about the Magi. It's important to know that it is, I think God put them there and that, uh, for many reasons, and that Daniel was instrumental in that kind of influence. Yeah. Daniel was reaching Gentiles before it was cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Daniel was reaching Gentiles before it was cool. So, let's move on to the next point. I hope we all catch that information. Get some history in our noggins about the Magi. Yes. Next point here is Jesus. Because Jesus is awesome. Yep. But I do actually want to focus today on the secular understanding of Jesus. Yes. Because we are supposed to rebuke and correct and contend for the faith, right? Oh, yeah. We're not supposed to, like, have ridiculous arguments with people. But we are keepers. <laughs> I do do that sometimes. Unless I'm right. Flat Earth. I did get blocked, it seems. By someone. Just while we mentioned the Flat Earth. As someone from the Southern Hemisphere. There's a reason why people from the Southern Hemisphere aren't Flat Earthers. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus in the secular history is what we're talking about. So, we, are, we need to have the information. And you don't want to like, uh, you don't want to start off at cor correcting someone on, on the wrong foot. Yeah. For example, if you're ever in a discussion with an Islamic person and you're trying to convince them that Jesus exists, they're going to agree with you. Yes. Because in Islam, Jesus is a prophet. Yes. So what you need to do is to know that they believe Jesus exists, you need to show them that he's God. Yes. If you start off trying to convince them, they're just going to be like, this person's ignorant. It's like if someone tries to convince us that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It's like... Uh, yeah. We know. <laughs> we speak in tongues. <laughs> yeah. So, Jesus, when you're in a secular context, all the scholars agree on a few things. There is some, uh, there's been contention over history, but basically, they agreed there was a guy named Jesus. He was baptized by a dude named John. He was crucified, and Pontius Pilate ordered the crucifixion. He had disciples. Those disciples continued on in his teachings after he was crucified. We obviously know that was after his resurrection. And there was some kind of controversy at the temple. Because <laughs> he threw down. Yes. So that is, secular-wise, in historical studies, that stuff is like, they're like, we can't deny this. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is too much evidence. We just have to accept that those things, at a minimum, happened. So, when you hear people that say Jesus was a myth, he never existed. He's just a guy that was based off all these other gods that supposedly existed. When you dig into that, by the way, it's all wrong anyway. But, they call that biblical uh, minimalism. The accounts have, they say the accounts have no trustworthiness. Nothing in the Bible can be used for historical purposes, etc. That's what they say biblical minimalism is. And godless people... Re rebuke that. Mm -hmm. So you've got to understand that when it comes to secular hist historians, people that don't believe in God, people that remove God from history, they look at the Bible and they say there's too much evidence 
too much lines up with other history, it's corroborated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when people would attack the word of God, when people would attack the existence of Jesus, know that they're disagreeing with the scholars. Yeah. They're disagreeing with the scholars who would have a bias to write off the Bible. Yeah. They would have a bias to be like, this isn't good. Yes. The last time there was anyone that was like seriously promoting biblical minimalism was in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long time ago. Corroborated, unlike Dr. Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so understand that, that that is where the secular world is at when it comes to Jesus. But how do we take them from the point of understanding those things about Jesus and get into the revelation of the resurrection and his divinity? Because that's what we're here for, right? Yes. That's why we don't get zapped up to heaven the moment that we become Christians. We're here to convince those that don't believe. Yes. So we have authentication. Yes. Prophecy. Yes. It is so important to know prophecy. Yes. Because just like Daniel, as we were learning, that was a form of prophecy when you could tell that guy the dream. Yes. He was never told, but God told him. Yep. And so he, he spoke as an oracle of God, which is what it means to prophesy. And then he interpreted a dream, which is about the future, which is what most people understand prophecy to be. And then it led to the Magi being able to show up and worship Jesus at the right time. Yes. Prophecy is important. And even in these, these first two chapters of Matthew, there are five prophecies Jesus fulfills mm. with very specific details. How many people do you think were born in Bethlehem, escaped to Egypt, but were known as being from Nazareth? <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone in the last a thousand years have fulfilled that. Yeah. There may only be one guy in history that's fulfilled that. And then he was also born of a virgin. <laughs> and then he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It just gets more and more specific as time goes by. Yeah, here next week. Yeah. And I think, I think a bunch, pretty much everyone in this room has heard the spiel of the numbers yes, that I do show that if you're going to believe that all those prophecies were by chance, you're believing in some slim odds, <laughs> real slim odds. That's Enough so that if, you, if those odds were true, you could buy a lottery ticket and win every week. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of the prophecies, the next point might be my favorite point of today is that prophecy that Jesus is a Nazarene is a pun. Whoa. <laughs> Come on. What an awesome piece of history. God used a pun to prophesy that Jesus was going to be born, uh, going to be called a Nazarene. Yeah, because he's a father, right? <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate dad joke. <laughs> so, Matthew 2, verse 23, they came to live in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophets. He'll be called a Nazarene. If you search the whole Old Testament, that's not there. All the other ones that are quoted in the, New, in the New Testament are all easily findable in the Old Testament. Yes. Just bam, you type it in, blue letter Bible, it comes up where it is in the Old Testament. This one, however, people have argued about for centuries. Because <laughs> it's like, where is it? We don't know where it is. But, uh, thanks to awesome Hebrew rabbis, we do know where it is. And uh, it is a pun. So, Isaiah 53, verse 2. 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. It just so happens that a shoot is the word nasir. And you change one letter of that in the Hebrew and you get the word, because Nazarene's obviously English, right? Mm -hmm. yep. You get the Hebrew word for Nazarene if you change one letter. So right there you have a pun that's being quoted that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Yes. If you read the rest of Isaiah 53, it's definitely about Jesus. Oh, yeah. And then, adding to the strength of this, Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, A shoot, so a branch, a pun Nazarene, yes. will come up from the stump of Jesse, from the branch, and the branch will bear fruit. Yeah. <laughs> so right here, now you might be like, Caleb, you're stretching. Well, guess what? The word Nazarene, the city, is actually named after a branch. That's <laughs> awesome. That's a new piece of information for me, and I was like, yes, it's even more provable. So the etymology of Nazarene, they get from Nasser. It's the word. They were like, there's a whole bunch of trees around here, there's a whole bunch of branches, and they're very fruitful. Let's call this place Nasser. But they ended up changing it a little bit, calling it a city thing. I don't know how all of that happens. Probably the same way you have St. Louis and Louisville, named after the same guy. <laughs> but that means that there's a prophecy of Jesus in the first two chapters of the New Testament, and it's a pun. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> and it's important to know, because you will have people that will attack the Bible and say that's an inconsistency. Oh, Matthew made a mistake. He quoted something that doesn't exist. And you can say, it only doesn't exist if you don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> so the next thing we're going to look at today in terms of the history here is the very sad situation of the baby massacre. Yes. So Herod orders that all the children under the age of two in that area are murdered. All the boys. All the boys, yeah, sorry. All the boys are murdered. That sucks. Yeah. That's real rough. With family planning began. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the original family planning, I guess. But uh, historians sometimes contest that this didn't happen because there's no evidence of it. They say if there was such a large mass murder of all these young infants, uh, there would have been some kind of historical record. People would have written about it. Why didn't people write about it? Well, it is an interesting question because we, we do have a lot of documents from the time expressing the terrible things that Herod, Herod did. Because that Herod dude, this was not like a one-off case. Yes. He killed four of his own kids. Yeah. yeah. Some people think that the fourth was actually in this. Yeah. That his fourth son was like, basically he killed three sons because he thought they were conspiring to overthrow him. And they weren't. He just did it anyway. And then here's a fourth one. The details are rough, but while the baby was very young, he got killed. Which is crazy. Mm. Yeah. Super crazy. Especially because he, he gave his kingdom to his son anyway. <laughs> so he was like, gonna be succeeded. The guy's crazy. But for us, answering that question, okay, why, why is this seemingly big event not recorded in history when all these other killings by Herod are? Well, there's a whole, we know there's a whole bunch of killings that weren't recorded that Herod did. There's just talk of his 
murderous nature. And then we also know that Bethlehem wasn't actually big. At the time, there was about 300 people living there. So, you take 300, and you do the, the math in terms of how many little kids would have been rocking around, there may have been five boys under the age of two. So when you're like, when people say, there should have been some kind of documented history of a massive genocide of all these little kids, where you're like, well, it wasn't actually really that bad. Like, it was really bad, but it wasn't, like, they, they weren't going to write about it for generations. Yeah. Some guy killed a few kids, which sucks, but it was not out of character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The guy was killing a lot of people, and these were just, sadly, probably four or five young boys that he killed. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's not a huge issue that there isn't, like, a specific document that's like, here it killed these little kids in Bethlehem this one time. It's just that... The only documentation there is is in the Bible, which apparently, you know, if Josephus has one document that says something happened, they say it happened. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why that's not the case with the Bible. It's, uh, if, if, Josephus, if Josephus says something and it contradicts the Gospels, they say the Gospels are wrong. I don't know why. I do know why. But <laughs> it's just like the default position is the Gospels must be wrong, even though they were more contemporary. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There's a bias against them for some reason. Yes. <laughs> and more corroborated. Yeah, more corroborated. Now, there's an interesting, interesting point here. Historians also attack Matthew in general, including this, because... It helps Jesus fulfill the model of Moses. So one of the things you find when you study Matthew is there's a lot of parallels with Moses' life. And part of the reason why this is an issue for historians is because they don't understand prophecy. Yeah. God has ordained things so that there's pattern. Yeah. People at this time are freaking out about the end times, right? Mm -hmm. If you know anything about the end times... There's a big tribulation period, and in the tribulation period, an abomination of desolation is set up uh, in the temple. Mm -hmm. So something that is abominable is set up in the temple of God. Mm -hmm. That is something that happens in the end times. But that's happened twice already. Yeah. It's a repeating pattern throughout history. Yeah. The same thing goes with the destruction of the temple. It's already been destroyed twice. It's going to get destroyed a third time. Mm. So you have these repeating situations in the Bible and with prophecy, and that's what we see. These things that apply to Moses can also apply to Jesus. Yep. You, have, uh, you have prophecies that apply to the exile of Babylon, and then they get changed and then they apply to Jesus because prophecy is pattern. Sadly, historians don't understand that. But that is a very important part of prophecy in the Bible. And then, last thing today, last big historical topic, we're going to jump across to Luke. We don't have to read the whole thing. But Luke chapter 2 in the Christmas story, we have the situation of how did they get to Bethlehem? They're in Bethlehem, as it says in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, but how did they get there for the birth? The reason why they went there is in Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to their own town to register. So, there's a big census. Now this is something that needs to be documentation for. And there is. We know that there was a massive census that was done when Quirinius became the governor. And it was in 6 AD, estimated. It was done around 6 AD, that's when they think it happened. But there's documentation that there was a huge census, which is a pretty good win for us. Yes. It's like, cool. Luke's saying there's a big census, and it happened. Awesome. Yes. That's good news for us. Yeah. But there's a little issue. <laughs> and the issue is, the same people that date the census to 6 AD, with the documents, they date Herod's death, which, remember, Jesus, is, Jesus has to go to Bethlehem because of the census. And then Herod tries to kill all the babies after that. They say that Herod died 10 years earlier. So that's obviously a little bit of like, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that, that the secular people are saying that. Uh, and then for me, part of the answer here is with the authorship of the Gospels, how much do you trust them? Do you trust them more than some of the secular history? We have some conflicting dates with the Gospels, and you're basically saying, do I trust Luke and Matthew, or do I trust a guy named Emil Schreer and Josephus? Josephus has these things dated, he has these things recorded, and Emil tried to work out when these things happened according to Josephus's recordings. Now, it's important to note, Josephus was born in 32 AD. Luke, 37 AD, sorry. I was a little hazy on I wrote that note down last night. 37 AD. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was born in 0 AD. He was 82 when he died in 82 AD. And so... Who are you going to trust? <laughs> the guy that was there? <laughs> or the guy that was born 30 years after it happened and tried to go back and work it out? Right? It's kind of like, to me, one of the massive issues with Islam is you have, you have the writings of the Hebrews, of Moses and Abraham and all that situation, right? That, like thousands of years before today. Very, very contemporary records of what happened in Moses and Abraham's time. And then you have the prophet Muhammad in 600 AD, so not even 2,000 years ago, only just over 1,000. He was like, nah, this is what really happened. <laughs> Changes the story completely. <laughs> You're like, um... It's kind of like, have you seen Inglorious Bastards? total re-revision of the history of World War II? Yeah. You don't believe it's real, do you? <laughs> Hitler didn't die in a movie theater, being shot by a Jew going, <laughs> No, it's a great story and very entertaining. But we know it's not true, and part of the reason we know it just came way later. And it does not line up with the records that happened at the time. Yeah. Yes. So, I decided to look into, why do people trust Josephus more than they trust Luke? It's an interesting question. Yes. Why? You need to have a why. Yeah. Especially if one was way more contemporary. 
Like, <laughs> if Megan was to say, when Caleb was in New Zealand, he played guitar for the Esther Melody Band, and Esther's like, when Caleb was in New Zealand, he played drums for the Esther Melody Band, what are you going to believe? Yes, sir. Because she was on stage with me. <laughs> she was there. I didn't meet Megan until I came to America. So, not to say you would lie like that, Megan. <laughs> Thanks for being a game. Maybe get confused. Maybe just have some hazy history. But we had this. <laughs> this almost gets like Monty Python level, by the way. So you know, you, speaking of Monty Python, you know when they try and like diagnose the woman as a witch. And they're like, ah, oh, is she a witch? Well, witches burn when we set them on fire. What else burns? Well, wood burns. Okay. Wood floats too. Yeah, wood does float. Well, what else floats? Uh, geese. Geese float and wood floats. And wood burns and witches burn. So if the witch weighs the same as a goose, She's a witch. <laughs> that's a real thing they put together. And that's about the level of why people doubt Luke. So, all I could find in my digging, and I remember that I've done this before, and I think I laughed about exactly the same thing. So, there are seven letters of Paul's that are uncontested. People are like, St. Paul definitely wrote those seven. Then there's the other seven, maybe... Eight, if you include Hebrews, that people can test hotly. Yeah. And so we know that Luke existed partly because he appears in, the, in Colossians. He gets called Luke the Gentile, who is a doctor. And that is Luke the Gentile, who's writing to Theophilus, who's a doctor, and writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And it appears that he's one of the 70 apostles. So you have the 12, and then Jesus also sent out the 70. And Luke is the only one that has that in his gospel, which shows he's probably part of that as well. Uh, he was there. And so he's mentioned in Colossians, and apparently because Colossians has 34 words that Paul doesn't use in another letter, he didn't write it. That's the reasoning. Are you going to doubt it because of that? I was just joking with Dad this morning. I'm like, okay, let's take my briefing I wrote today. And then let's take one I did 10 years ago. See how many words I didn't use. <laughs> Caleb didn't write that briefing 10 years ago. He didn't learn any new words over that time. Or put it the other way around. This is not actually you here today. Yeah, it's not me here today. It's not Caleb. <laughs> that's what they're basing this on and they're like this is my high scholarly opinion that you must believe because of my authority <laughs> it's shaky ground eh yes. you can trust the gospels they have some solid evidence and the only thing attacking it is apparently Paul learned some new words <laughs> you know the dude's like or just decided to use some different ones you know I mean, <laughs> or like, languages grow and new words come out all the time. Yeah. Paul was a very learned yeah. man at the peak of like society's understanding of everything. Yeah. Yeah. He read poetry. The dude was up in the play with the new words. Yeah. Not just that, he's writing on entirely different matters than Colossians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a whole different situation. Oh, there's, there is one other thing, by the way. Uh, 
I did find this. So the other thing that they bring into contention is that it's definitely true that Paul wrote Galatians, and in Galatians, Paul seems to have a very negative attitude towards the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And apparently it's too, his attitude of the relationship between the two in Colossians is too harmonious. Paul wouldn't think that way. I'm like, really? <laughs> Especially because the time difference, like, Colossians is when Paul is in jail. He's been rocking around for a while. Galatians, as I understand it, was written much earlier. So, you know, he's dealing with a very specific situation in Galatians. You have to totally misunderstand it to think, oh, I just read Galatians. I think Paul didn't like relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. It's like, he sees himself as the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. Yeah. He wants there to be good relationships between the two. Yeah. So, That's why he's fronting Peter. <laughs> so those are the things that it's hanging on. Which gives me great trust. <laughs> I'm like, oh, awesome. That makes it even more true that Luke wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the only things that bring it into doubt. We are in a good place. So, uh, those are my historical facts for you today when it comes to the Christmas story. Awesome. Emmanuel, God with us. I think it's pretty clear that we can trust what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty interesting that there is some serious historical evidence that you can present in 30 minutes that makes it pretty clear because you can go much deeper than that in terms of all the things that back these stories up. So let's remember the reason for the season. We are here to lead people to Christ. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and they who lead many to righteousness like the stars in the sky forever and ever. Let's be eternal stars by leading people to righteousness. So we're going to sing oh, additional Christmas.
original. Merry Christmas.